Well, good morning and welcome to Sedaris Church. Uh, if you're new with us and you found us online and you're watching this video, we want to extend an extra warm welcome to you. Thanks for checking us out uh, through this video and, and we hope to be able to uh, have, a, have a continued relationship with you. So go ahead and fill out a connect card that is actually in a link at the bottom of this video and someone will follow up with you uh, with uh, kind of some avenues to how to get connected to Sedaris Church. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, and we realize right now that for many of us, we spent all week in our living rooms working on our computer screens. And so right now, if you're sitting in your living room on your computer screen watching church, it might feel a lot like work. Um, and, and that's okay. That's un understandable. Thank you so much for showing up to church today and leaning into this. We trust that uh, the Word of God proclaimed in both song and in sermon will be um, uh, life to your soul and uh, so thanks for leaning into that today, and, and we hope that this feeds your heart and your mind and your spirit. Um, if you have your Bible, go ahead and pull it out and open up to Second Peter. Second Peter is near the end of our New Testaments, and it's a, a letter from Peter to various churches that are scattered, scattered around the Roman Empire. Um, Peter was one of Jesus's disciples. Uh, he was, in fact, the closest of Jesus's disciples to Jesus. Uh, they probably had the most, one of the most intimate relationships of the 12. That's Peter. And after Jesus died, rose again, ascended back to heaven, uh, Peter was actually left at the at the, the helm of the Jerusalem church, a church that uh, uh, sprang to uh, 3,000 uh, new converts in one day on day one. And, and Peter was actually the leader of this Jerusalem church for a few decades after Jesus had left. And, and we've, been we've been going through these letters from Peter as a church um, for a few months now. And uh, these are two letters that Peter's actually writing at the end of his life. Um, he's writing from Rome towards the end of his life. And, and from there, Peter, um, aged and wise, he writes two letters that are going to be circulated among the, um, the Roman Empire, probably mostly in modern day, what is modern day Turkey. And, and he's writing wisdom at the end of his life for the church to follow. After doing it for a couple decades, he says, this is what you need to know now that I am going to be transitioning um, to death, actually. And, and when we answered uh, really why Peter wrote this second letter in particular last week, he wrote it because Jesus told Peter that he was going to die soon. Uh, Jesus told Peter that, that he was going to die soon. And, uh, and part of us might, might question and say, you know what, did that really happen? Can't anybody say when they're old and aged that they're going to die soon? Did Peter really hear this from Jesus? Did he hear correctly or is he just kind of extrapolating here? Um, but if we remind ourselves of Peter's story, we actually discover that he's always had the inside track to what Jesus was up to, and in particular, what Jesus was trying to accomplish through him in order to have the Jesus movement go into the world. Um, Peter had a front row seat to Jesus's life, even closer than his disciples. He had experiences even they didn't have with Jesus. We're going to be unpacking one of those today. Um, and Jesus told Peter and, and the rest of the disciples that the continuing movement would, would be led by his leadership. 
And then even after Jesus uh, left and Jesus and Peter was leading the church, um, Jesus continued to reveal things to Peter through miraculous visions in order to light a fire under him to, to take the Jesus movement ahead forward where Jesus wanted it to go, even though Jesus wasn't there. There's one particular instance of that in Acts chapter 10 where, where, where Peter's shown this vision of all these things he can't eat. And, and it's really Jesus goading Peter, prodding G Peter to go and bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Okay, and actually... Um, <laughs> What's really interesting about this letter is Peter says uh, last, uh, we unpacked it last week, is that Peter says that a similar thing's happening where Jesus has lit a fire underneath of him, told him that he's going to die. So Peter's now like, oh, shoot, I'm going to die. I need to write this letter to all of these churches. And so uh, Jesus is kind of working how he always had with Peter. He's lighting a fire under him in order to get Peter to do what Peter needs to do to take the Jesus movement forward. And because uh, Jesus did that with Peter, we have this letter today. And we've been unpacking it together. And so this, this, uh, this second Peter is in particular a special, um, we could call it a manifesto. I believe we even did last week. A manifesto, Peter's like, this is what you guys need to know now that I'm going to die in order for this movement to continue to go forward in the most healthy way possible. And in the beginning of chapter one, which we're actually wrapping up chapter one today, we're going to pick it up in verse 16. In the beginning of chapter one, um, Peter is opening Christians uh, up to a reality, to a reality that, that because they've been born into the family of God, they have the power to escape their own sinful desire and thereby the sinful desires of the world that are causing corruption. And we've unpacked that for the past three weeks, which has been particularly enlightening in these times of, of, of racial uh, questioning, racial, uh, um, uncovered racial oppression and systemic oppression. And so we've actually been unpacking it kind of through the lens of that corruption in the last three weeks. Um, and Peter says, and the gospel of Jesus has empowered you to be released from this sinful, these sinful desires to live a virtuous life to live a virtuous life, to confirm the power of God that's present within them. And, and, and that's interesting because of this. If Peter thinks that his manifesto must be focused on helping Christians live virtuously, that must mean that after people become Christians, after they've been born again, they have the choice whether to live virtuously or not. It's not as if the power of God comes into the life of a Christian, of a believer, and it takes control of their body and it forces them to live perfect, a perfect life. No, Peter is saying that those choices are up to us. Those choices must be up to us, that the power is there within us, much like power comes into your apartment or your home. But the onus is on us in order to flip the light switch to eliminate darkness, to actually unleash that power and see it. Living virtuously, living virtuously. Now, when someone tells you to listen to the Bible and live a virtuous life, and when someone tells you to orient and order your life with all of its decisions, with all of its choices around it, um, part of us bristles. Part of us cringes at that. And it's a mark of the fall within us. It, it bristles and it responds with this maddening question that children say, and they say all the time when you ask them to live virtuously. They, they ask why. Why? 
Why should I listen to the Bible? And then that's the and then the same thing actually happens. That's how uh, Satan works as well. Spiritual powers come alongside our flesh, which is already asking this question. It's kind of pricked by the, the notion that we have to obey this and live a virtuous life with regards to the Bible. And, and, and Satan comes alongside and says the same question. If you go back to Genesis chapter three, the question really is, why should you live obediently to God's word? Why? Why? And then what's more is there's another party at play. That's the world around us. That would be the, the, both the, the greater powers, the systems that are at work in society, but also individuals who come alongside Christians and they say, why are you listening to that? Why should you listen to that? Why? Why should you listen to that? And, and this is actually the reality that Peter's really writing to, most likely in this letter. We're going to unpack it in chapters two and three. That's when we really get into it. But Peter had this notion, this, this understanding, this experience even of this, that there were people going around the ancient Roman Empire. Um, they were finding, they were calling themselves Christians. They were going into Christians' communities and they were saying, why? Why are you obeying that? Why are you listening to Peter? Listen to our teaching. It's way better. They were tempting Christians to stop living a virtuous life. And so Peter here has been petitioning them to live a virtuous life. And he's almost anticipating this this response that might be from people who have experienced this fall teaching, but might even be from people who themselves are asking, um, why? Why actually obey the word of God? You see, this is the question that comes to those um, who have concluded that the scriptures are true, okay? And we're not talking about whether the scriptures are true or not. Even people who have uh, um, concluded that the scriptures are, are true come to the second question, which is, why should I listen to it? Why should I listen to Peter? Why should I listen to the Bible? And, and there are these, uh, your flesh, the, the devil in the world that are all saying that. Why should you listen to it? So the question isn't necessarily challenging whether the Bible is true or not, but whether we should listen to it. And this is what Peter says to address that question. Second Peter, verse 16. He says, for we, that's the apostles, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the, and the voice was borne to him by majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises. That's a reference to when Jesus comes back in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from somebody's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Spirit. So in this passage, Peter is saying, listen to the word of God, because nothing is more foundational, nothing is more influential to how you live than how you respond to this work 
to, to, than how you take the Bible. You see, even if, if you come to the conclusion that everything in the Bible is true, even if you do that, you're not done there. The next question is, what role should the Bible really be playing in my life? How much influence am I to give it in my life? Isn't it? You see, there, there's, a, there's a difference between a belief that something's true and an admission that the true thing is to be authoritative. That's what we're talking about today. Is this thing to be authoritative in your life? And Peter here is arguing nothing short. I'll just put all the cards out on the table. He's arguing nothing short that the Christian takes the Bible in both the Old Testament and the New Testament as the authoritative word of God in their lives, all of it to be applied to all of their life. The entire Bible is the authoritative word of God to be applied to every part of life. Now, 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 don't turn off the video, okay? The, the, the way this looks in practice is incredibly um, nuanced, but it's incredibly powerful as well. But let's unpack G, uh, um, Peter's argument as to why. Why should we give this thing complete authority in our lives? Why? And to, and to argue his point, Peter points to an interesting event. He points to an event he experienced with Jesus. And... Um, but here's what's interesting about that event. You would think that if Peter was trying to convince us to listen to him, he might go to the time when Jesus said, hey, this guy's going to be the leader of my church. <laughs> you, you might go to a time when, when, um, when Jesus, he said, this is what Jesus taught us. So that's why we do it. You, he, you, he might try to say, hey, listen to me because I saw Jesus heal thousands of people over a three-year period. I saw Jesus raise people from the dead. I saw Jesus feed thousands of people with almost no food a couple of times. I saw Jesus go to the cross, be risen again, and then go back to the Father. So listen to me. But that's not what he does. That's not what he points to. Instead, he points to this somewhat obscure, strange event here. He, he, he really points to a, a very obscure event that happens, and three of the, the Gospels record it for us in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. He really unpacks this obscure event called the transfiguration. The transfiguration. And Peter says that it's in the transfiguration that we find the key to giving the word of God authority in our lives. So actually, let's just start there. Let's bounce over to a transfiguration account in Matthew chapter 17. You can turn over there with me. I'm going to be picking it up right at the beginning. In Matthew chapter 17, <clears throat> transfiguration event. And six days, and after six days, and so what happened six days before? Well, actually, six days before this, Jesus called Peter Satan and harshly rebuked him. And so kind of in Peter's mind, uh, these two events are very linked to him. He's like, uh, I got harshly rebuked by Jesus. And then six days later, this um, obscure, crazy, fantastic, majestic, glorious event is what he tells us in, in 2 Peter. This ma majestic glory happened. They're six days apart. It's really interesting. Not many, I mean, there's almost nowhere in the gospels that say, and four days later and five days later, but on this account, Peter, it was very crystallized in his mind. It was six days after I got called Satan, okay? <laughs> and six days, uh, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. 
And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking. He had thought that the kingdom of God was coming to earth in that moment. Moses and Elijah Elijah are showing up. God's getting ready to do something. Let's set up camp, okay? It's a very logical conclusion. I think we we like to throw Peter under the bus, sometimes unnecessarily, but that's a very logical conclusion, okay? If you're seeing Moses and Elijah come back, you're like, okay, God's hoping to do something here. (laughs) He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one of this vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. And then they talk a little bit about Elijah, because in their minds, if Elijah showed up, that means things were about to start happening. An obscure event came and went in the life of Peter. And Jesus says, hey, hold up. Don't tell anybody about this. Why did Jesus even invite these three disciples to witness this, to walk up there, hear a voice and and then cower in fear? It's a very obscure event, and to be honest, there's not much written on it in the literature. And so your pastor has had a a, a somewhat challenging week wrestling with this passage, wrestling with this instance of the 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 transfiguration and asking what it means for us and why Peter's using it here in 2 Peter 1. But I think it has something to do with authority. I think there's a key element of authority here that we actually have authority discussed on several different levels. And we know that because of how Peter unpacks his interpretation of what the transfiguration meant here in first Peter two. I call it the trifecta of authority is actually happening here. Okay. We're just going to walk through them. The first we see quite clearly that God had extended his authority to Jesus. The transfiguration tells us that God has extended his authority to Jesus. Um, During his ministry, Jesus was in this unique dance of displaying great authority and then telling people to shut up about it. (laughs) Don't tell people about my authority because he didn't want to be murdered quite yet. Because he knew that the religious leaders eventually, eventually when they were going to catch wind of his full authority, that they were going to murder him. This eventually does happen on the cross. But, but God's calling, uh, God and calling Jesus his son and commanding obedience to him had a very common connotation in a communal culture like ancient Israel, where sons were seen as extensions of their fathers in all agrarian and other business dealings. Okay, so, so people would see, oh, that, that guy's son is coming in to, to do um, work for his father. He's essentially an extension of his father and is carrying the authority of his father and the decisions that he makes and in the things that he does. This is very clear. This is one of the reasons why Jesus is God's son. It's that he carries this very same authority that God had sent him into the world and that he carries the authority of the father. And Jesus makes this very clear over the course of his life. He'll say things um, like this, your sins are forgiven. Something only God had the authority to do. 
He even adopts the very name of God saying people were were challenging him saying, you seem to be saying some very authoritative things. Are you greater than Abraham? And he says, before Abraham was, I am. I am was the name of God. I am. They pick up stones to stone him to death. You see, the transfiguration without doubt establishes the divinity of Christ and by implication, his authority given to him by the father. Okay, but that's just the first thing. Uh, The second thing that uh, regarding authority that we see in the transfiguration, as Peter tells us here, is that God in the transfiguration validates the continuing authority of the Old Testament scriptures. Of the Old Testament scriptures, those are continually, even after Jesus has come on the scene, um, um, given all of his teaching, gone to the cross, died, risen again, sent the spirit back into the world, Peter is saying, nope, these things are clearly still authoritative. That this event happened on a mountain is no happenstance. It's no happenstance. Um, There had ever, only in scripture, ever been recorded two other people that go up on a mountain to talk with God. That's Moses and Elijah. And so they've hiked up this mountain. Jesus has gone up there to talk with God. And all three of them are in the presence of God as evidenced by this crazy display of light, this miraculous display of light, a purity that could only have come from the throne room of God himself. God's throne has been opened up to this mountain, just like on Mount Sinai with Moses, Mount Horeb with Elijah. And this is the conclusion Peter's drawing from this event. Jesus is in partnership with these guys. You know the things, the difficult things written in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's hard for us in our 21st century enlightened selves to stomach. Moses wrote that. You know all that stuff in the the prophetic literature about coming wrath and judgment of God? The prophets wrote that. Elijah's on board with all of that. It all offends our sensibilities, but Jesus is on board with that. Jesus is in, he's in cahoots with these guys. And if you, if you think you can accept Jesus while saying no thank you to the rest of the Old Testament literature, you're sorely mistaken. That's what the transfiguration tells us. Peter says that these Old Testament scriptures were written at the direction of God, the Holy Spirit, the very spirit of Christ. So Jesus is not only in cahoots with these fellas, but he is over them because he had a hand in directing them to write the things that they wrote. But in a sense, he's actually under them because when he showed up, he obeyed these writings. He embodied these writings. This is the dance of the incarnation. Jesus is fully God and fully man. We don't have time to wrestle with all of that today. And so when it comes, but when it comes to giving scripture authority, we really take our cues from Jesus. And Jesus was frequently taking the Old Testament scriptures and and the writers and uh, attributing their statements to God. One example is in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, uh, Jesus is talking about marriage and he quotes this verse from Genesis that if you've been to a Christian wedding, you no doubt have heard. He quotes this. He says, have you not read that God said, Jesus says, and then he quotes, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus says, have you not heard that God said this? The only problem is if you go back to Genesis uh, um, chapters one and two, sure, you see God saying a lot of things in those chapters. 
God doesn't say that in Genesis. It's not the voice of God. It's actually an editorial comment made by the author of Genesis, presumably Moses. But what Jesus comes up on that scripture and says, have you not heard that God said this? God said it. So so the words in the Old Testament scripture, God's words are not just relegated to the quotation marks when a prophet will say, and God said blank. It's actually relegated to how these, these authors would interpret what the word of God meant as well. Have you not heard that God said what Moses wrote as an editorial comment. You see, Moses' words are God's words in the Old Testament. Jesus said not a single jot or tittle from the law, that jots are just parts of letter and tittles are other parts of letters. They wouldn't pass away at all, that those are going to continue. He came to fulfill them, not to eliminate them. This meeting with Moses and Elijah, though, we, we, that, that means we can't understand it as a passing of the torch. It's like, okay, Moses and Elijah, you guys had your sayings of God's word. Those are great. Now we're in a new era. This isn't a passing of the torches. Jesus said he didn't come, away, come to do away with their words, but that their words, would, their words would continue, meaning every letter of the Bible is divinely inspired, that it is as if God was speaking. It was true. Jesus believed it was true, but he also, remember, that's not the question we're asking this morning. We're asking, are you going to base your life on it? Should you listen to it? And Jesus also based his life on it. Every time that Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, what did he say? First words out of his mouth. But it is written. He quotes the Bible. When they come to arrest him and get him killed, Peter jumps up, takes his sword out, and cuts off one of the guard's ears. And Jesus holds back and says, Peter, no, 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 no. Don't do that. If, if I wanted, I could have 12 legions of angels show up right now and fight for me. But in order that the scripture be fulfilled, I must be arrested and taken away. You see how he's basing his life, his, his reactions to the events in his life off of scripture? When he's dying on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is from Psalm 22, Psalm chapter 22. And what Jews would do, and particularly Jewish teachers would do in the first centuries, they would say a first line of the Psalm, which this is the first line of a Psalm, so as to invoke the entire content of it. And so what Jesus is actually doing is he's invoking all of Psalm 22 with regards to his death scene. And when you read through Psalm 22, you see that Jesus based his death off, uh, based and even planned and orchestrated his death off of Psalm 22. You read through it and you're like, oh my goodness. The way that he was orienting what he did, the way that he was orienting how he thought, the way that he was orienting how he felt everything. It's right there at the gospel. Jesus based his life on the Bible. He didn't just believe that they were true. He thought that they were the operating authority of his life. He based what he taught, uh, how he responded to events. He based what he did all on the scriptures. He based everything in life on the scripture. He, He had full confidence in every letter of it, all of it. It was both the essence of his identity and the secret of his greatness. Jesus thought and taught that what the biblical authors said and wrote. God said. 
This is how inspired the Bible is. And, and, and now there, there's an objection that I've also, I've heard in the past that doesn't actually seem like an objection at this point. And, and in the past, I've given it the benefit of the doubt. And it's when people say, oh, you know, I, I'm a Christian, but I don't take the Bible literally. And, and I've always given them the benefit of the doubt as someone who's gone through seminary and said, oh yeah, of course we don't take everything in the Bible literally. We, we, we read the poetry as poetry. We read the wisdom literature as wisdom literature. We, 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 we read epic literature as epic literature. We, we, we read songs as songs. We read letters as letters. We read historical um, recounts, uh, accounts as historical accounts. And, and it took me a couple years to realize that, that this statement that I, I don't take the whole Bible literally actually means that I'm uncomfortable with what the Bible's saying at several points at face value, and I'm not going to listen to those parts. That's really what I've found to be behind this I don't take the Bible literally statement. I'm uncomfortable with a lot of what the Bible says, and I'm not going to listen to those. I'm not going to give those authority in my life. That's usually what's being said behind that comment. But Peter says he saw this transfiguration validate the prophets. He says, now we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed after the transfiguration. Whatever doubt there was that this was the word of God beforehand, it's now been eliminated. It's true. And and, and then Peter takes it to the next step. You will do well to pay attention to it until Jesus comes back. Let it be authoritative, Peter says. Just like Jesus did. Let it be the basis of your choices, your decisions, your reactions. Let it be the basis, the authority in your life. Don't don't just use it to comfort yourself. Use it to convict yourself. Use it to guide you through this life. All right, let's get to the third part of the trifecta here of the transfiguration. Uh, What else does it say about authority? Well, it says that God extends authority to the apostles. Um, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, thunder, smoke, lightning ensues. The people down, the, the people down below, they, they cower. Uh, Elijah goes up Mount Horeb, and, and, and when God shows up, he's so scared that he wraps himself in a cloak in fear. Jesus goes up the, the mountain with his d- disciples. The voice of God booms. Jesus doesn't flinch because he is God. The disciples hit the deck out of fear. Matthew's, Matthew records there, they were terrified. They thought they were done. But they weren't. They live. God allows them to live. They continue on as eyewitnesses of majesty, Peter says here. Um, For those of you familiar with the Bible, you'll easily complete the pattern here. Throughout the scriptures, what we see is that when God allowed people into his presence, when God did that and they hear his very voice and they live, they go on operating as spiritual authorities of God, for God. The experience changes them. They are different people afterwards. Moses at the burning bush, the very presence of God. He's a different person after that. And that's why Peter here, that's the third reason why Peter is appealing to the transfiguration here. Jesus didn't go up to the mountain alone. Peter did. James did. John did. They had a taste of what God is like. They got a glimpse and they are forever changed. They were forever changed. They were eyewitnesses to God and eyewitnesses have authority. This is a spiritual reality, but here's the logic to it. Okay. Think of a courtroom. Eyewitnesses are put on the stand, not just to tell the truth, not just to tell the truth. That's not the primary reason why they're there. They are primarily there 
to invoke their authority, their witnessing had created to make a judge and jury do the right thing and make the right choice. They're not there just to say true things. They're there as an authority to help people make the right choices regarding cases. Eyewitness, they don't just transmit truth. They demand authority regarding whatever they have seen, whatever they have heard. Um, so, so, so that's what the transfiguration tells us. It tells us that when our flesh, the devil, and the world try to convince, convince us not to listen to the word of God, um, even though that we have accepted that it's true, we should trust the eyewitnesses of God above them. Now, now that should be enough motive to listen. We have a good spiritual uh, explanation here. We have a good logical explanation here that the transfiguration gives us. But Peter adds something too to help us lean into this a little bit more, to help us buy into the authority of the Bible. And this tells us something, that sometimes uh, spiritual realities and logical realities, that they, they, they may make a lot of sense in the mind. They may make a lot of sense uh, um, as we, to our spirit. Sometimes we need more, and that's okay. If there's anything that, that, the, the, that the life with Christ looks like, it's bring your questions and be honest about when you're not convinced. Because when you do that, you actually get more. You actually get more answers. There's more to it. And, and so Peter follows up with something really cool here, which would be the experiential argument. The experiential motive to follow the authority of the Bible He says this in verse 19. Verse 19, he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to. Now here is the experiential piece. As a lamp shining in a dark place. He is saying that coming under the authority of the Bible is experientially good for us. He's rounding out his argument here. We have a spiritual motive. We have a logical motive. Here's an experiential motive, Peter says. Peter is reminding Christians here of a a reality. Perhaps they once fully embraced. Perhaps they've forgotten it. It goes like this. The world is a dark place. The world is a dark place. You see, you see, most people in our culture will say, don't let anybody tell you how to live your life. You should be your own life authority. But it's incredibly naive to assume that, that we can navigate our lives and be completely autonomous and free from authority as we walk through it. See, your life authority, uh, your life authority is that which determines the choices that you make in this life. And most people throughout history and throughout time have said that 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 life authority was outside of them, whether it be their religion, their family, their tribe, their nation. Those are the authorities that that they lean on to make the choices that they have to make in their lives. Uh, Tradition. But in Western culture, we have decided, and this comes from the Enlightenment, um, we've decided that no one and nothing outside of me can dictate my life choices. None of it. I will determine my life choices. But with verse 19, Peter is saying is that your, your hearts, your world, your all cultures have darkness. They, they are dark in a certain sense. And, and only scripture can show you the, the right way to walk through your heart, to walk through this world, to, to walk through this city. Only scripture has the authoritative power to illuminate and help us see. If you think you are self-determinate today, if you, are, if you think that you are in control of your life choices, it's an illusion. 
because there are three things that are constantly vying, uh, that are always trying to exert authority over you all the time. We, and and we, we usually don't recognize them. Our emotions, our culture, and those whose validation we crave. Our emotions, our culture, and those whose, whom, whose validation we crave. Those are the three things that are always over us, that are always trying to exert authority in our life. And it's good that the Bible would be your authority, Peter's saying, because if not, your author- you, you will have something else as your authority and it won't be as good. It'll still be dark. So let's go through those, those three here. First, feelings. If you say, I'm my own authority, I'm, I, I do what I feel is right to me, you're, you're letting your feelings dictate life. That, that's really what you're doing. Um, and is there, is there a problem with that? Well, well, yes, absolutely there is, because if you're letting your feelings dictate your life and the choices you make, then you are letting that which is, if we're honest, um, incoherent and unreliable, climb into the driver's seat and start driving your life. It's almost like letting a drunk driver behind the wheel. Um, This is a a fun little uh, thought experiment to do uh, when it comes to evaluating whether we should let our emotions dictate the choices that we make in life. Think of your 12-year-old self. Now, most of us look at our 12-year-old self and we would say, oh, gosh, I'm just embarrassed at the choices my 12-year-old self made. I could go down a list and say, oof, that is embarrassing how foolish I was, you know? And, and, we, and we, oh, we, we facepalm. But here's the thing. You actually knew that at around 15 years old, 16 years old. <laughs> And actually throughout life, this never goes away. Uh, My my mentor actually shed light on this. And and as I've talked to other older people, they all say this, that, you know, at at, at 20, you're going to think that you're dumb at 15. At 30, you're going to think you're dumb at 20. At 40, you're going to think you're dumb at at 25. To a certain sense, I guess there is an increased amount of time that comes between it. But I look at things I did five years ago, and I'm just embarrassed by how I let my feelings dictate what was going on there and my choices in life. Just five years ago. Now, if you extrapolate this out all the way, and you got to a ripe old age of 120 years old, I am fairly confident that that 120-year-old self would say, when I was 80, I was a complete jerk. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? What does that mean? It means that whatever age you're at right now, you're a fool. I'm a fool. How can you rely on your intuitions when your intuitions from just a few years ago let you down in some pretty significant ways? Letting our emotions control control us leaves us in a dark place. Uh, Second, culture is always trying to control you. It's trying to bend you towards what it says is important. Okay, extrapolate back here. Uh, Who told you that accomplishing the American dream through getting a white collar job and buying a house was one of the the highest, most noble pursuits that you could do in life? To vacation a month or more out of the year in exotic places and get whatever you want, no no matter how small or in how little quantities, (laughs) immediately. Where does that come from? I'm deeply troubled by this little innocent seeming phrase in our constitution that says we should feel entitled. um, No, even more fundamental than that, that, that it is our right to pursue our own happiness. Where did that come from? Where did that come from? 
why do we let it live in our lives unchallenged? Jesus told us how to be happy in the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the meek. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy are the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Happy are you when you are persecuted for God's sake. Because then, he says, the inheritance of the kingdom is coming. We don't have a right to pursue our own happiness. Where does that come from? What's more is that now, more than ever, our culture, so that's kind of the general Western culture notion. You know, it comes from John Locke. And if you want to, I mean, read his kind of like five treaties to really understand, oh, this is where, I mean, he's like one of the big guys of the Enlightenment, okay? Read his five treaties. I mean, they're just, they just shape how we understand the world in Western culture. Um, um, I've said what they are. I guess I'll just say uh, the, the, the treaty on um, tolerance, uh, the two treaties on government, the, the treaty on education, his treaty on, on human understanding. Those shape how you think. In every way that you don't think like the Bible, you think like those five treaties um, that, that, that he wrote way back at the end of the 1600s. Okay, but we're getting off track here. That's more of the general cultural stuff. But what about the particular? More than ever has our culture truly shown how it desires to control you. Now, um, I'm talking about the, the present justice movements that are going on. They, they all start with rightly identifying nasty, disgusting, festering sin. Okay? Lamenting it. Petitioning all of us to roll up our sleeves and find a solution. That women not be uh, sexually and physically abused. That, 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 that black men and women are, are, are not systematically oppressed and murdered. In our country, these are things that our country has righteous indignation about. Our culture has righteous indignation about these things. But what we see is that time and time again, this righteous indignation can never move past that indignation to forgiveness and reconciliation. And people who were once enemies can't and won't work together, thereby remaining enemies and we still remain in a dark place. And it's a shame, but it's expected from systems and people who do not have the illumination that comes with giving the Bible authority in all aspects of life. So feelings, culture. The third, validation. Whoever's validation you seek, they are controlling you. They are an authority in your life, whether it be a parent, a friend, a romantic partner, a boss, a coworker, a friend group, a social club, I guess you could even say, even your own child. You can seek the validation of your own child and they control you. If you're seeking their validation, they are controlling you. They are that which is influencing your choices. They are that which is influencing your decisions. Uh, they are that which is influencing how you're living your very life. They set your goals. They set your ambitions. They dress what, or they, they, they set what you dress up as and the image you put out. They set your hobbies. You're a slave to their wants and desires. You're in a dark place. You're trapped. Authority is hard for us. Authority is hard. I, I get it. But, but don't you see that we are wired to come under authority? Don't you see that we, we naturally do it anyways? 
We can have a really long discussion as to why that is. But, but Peter is saying, why don't you give yourself to an authority that will give you light in a dark place? That will give you life in a hopeless place. Why don't you give yourself an authority that not only doesn't want to take from you, but actually can't gain much by anything that you try to give it? An authority that wants to bless you first and foremost. Why don't you give yourself to an authority that has already shown that, that, it, that he has given everything for you, who planned and orchestrated his own death so that you could experience abundant life, not just now, but forever. Why don't we give ourselves to Jesus who tells us that, that his yoke is easy, his burden is light. Yes, he says there's authority, but it's easy and it's light and it's illuminating, Peter says. Aren't you tired of the heavy burdens that the authorities of this world lap on you. They slap on your shoulders. After you give so much to follow them, aren't you sick of how they actually don't bring any light? They don't bring any life, but you're still in darkness. After you give so much to follow them, why don't they deliver on their promises? Let's run to Jesus. Let us, let's us kneel before the cross and let us ask him, to dismantle our worldly allegiances that leave us in darkness and turn us to kingdom-oriented people that, that, that will experience light and experience life in our lives and we in turn will be the salt and the light of the world to give it to everybody. People who can bring the true light of the world to, to people who are in darkness. Knowing that will eventually prevail. Why? Because Jesus went up on a mountain 2,000 years ago. He was illuminated by the all-powerful God who said this, This is my beloved son with whom I am, I am well pleased. Listen to him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now and we just want to just admit that that Lord, there are so many things in this life that are vying to be our authorities. And, and if we're honest, at our moments when we feel most weak, we're willing to give in because of what they promise us. And then we're just caught in this cycle of being frustrated when that promise doesn't come through. So Lord, right now, we just pray that, that you would free us from that corruption of authorities in life, whether it be through our feelings, culture, the people whom we seek validation from. God, would you free us and would you give us life? May it be life to the full as we seek to submit ourselves to your word. May we wrestle with it. May we really get into it. May we have questions. May we admit that and be honest with it. May we be works in progress when it comes to coming underneath the, the authority of your scriptures. For it's a hard thing to do. But you say that when we do it, the burden is easy, the yoke is light, and we can see in the darkness. So we thank you for providing it for us because you love us. Thank you for telling us about yourself. You didn't have to. Thank you for sending your son into this world to redeem us. You didn't have to. You are our father of grace. We love you. Amen.